We began Yeshua last week. We didn't get very far. We were on the very first letter of the very first Pasuk in Sefer Yeshua, the Vav of Vayihi Achrimos Moshe Eved Hashem. It, it transpired after the death of Moshe, the servant of Hashem. So we, we started discussing the fact that Vav in Hebrew is often translated as and, the Vav, Vav Achibur, the Vav in the beginning of a word, often translated as and. The point is hotly debated among the, among the commentaries. The many, many psukim of the Torah begin with Vav. Pasuk after Pasuk begins with Vav. And I think by one count, about 90% of psukim begin with Vav. If you look at the first few psukim of the Torah, Bereshus Bar Elokim, Bereshus does not, but Vihaaret Saisiso Vavo, Vayom Rashem Yihiar, Vayavdel Hashem, Vayavdel Elokim, Benar Benachoshech, Vayom Rehelokim, many, many psukim end in Vav. And Bible translators have grappled with the question of whether Vav should be translated as and or whether it has a different stylistic meaning in Hebrew. Often, sometimes it means and, but not always. The commentaries here are split. Rashi says the Vav connects it to the Seder Torah, to the Pentateuch, to the Chumash. The Chumash ends with the death of Moshe, as we read on Simchas Torah. And the, it begins, Vahiyachrimos Moshe Hashem. And the next event in the history of Kali Yisrael, the next phase, was what we're going to discuss now. That is what some of the commentaries explain. Rashi, Matsudas David. After we discuss the death of uh, Moshe, we go on to what happened with Yoshua. Radak, Radak disagrees. The Radak brings different explanations. The Radak is inclined to the view that the, the, the Vav, he says, often cannot be meaningfully translated as and, even if in many cases it clearly means and, or it could mean and, but in some cases he brings examples. The Vav does not mean and, and therefore he says it's not necessarily the, the, the case that Vav has to mean and. He gives, uh, he gives, he gives various psukim. He says... Uh, he gives various took him to that effect, and he says that it's not, not entirely clear that the Vav means and. But either way, it, it makes sense. So that the, besides the Vav, the, Torah, the Navi explicitly connects it to the death of Moshe. It was after the death of Moshe, Eved Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu is called Eved Hashem several times. Uh, the, when, when Miriam and Aaron speak about, uh, criticize Moshe, what they criticize him for is not so clear, but at the end of Parshas Baloscha, it says they spoke against Moshe, and Miriam uh, became afflicted with Saras. So it says that uh, Hashem, Hashem, critis- Hashem c- criticizes them and he explains that they were making a big mistake in comparing Moshe to themselves, to other Nevi'im. He said other Nevi'im have a lesser, uh, lesser level of prophecy, but Moshe has a higher level. Avdi Moshe, Lochain, Avdi Moshe, my servant Moshe, is different from other Nevi'im. You, you don't understand, Moshe, Avdi Moshe is... Uh, so Moshe is called... Uh, Moshe is called Eved Hashem on more than one occasion. Um, Moshe is called Eved Hashem on more than one occasion. There are other people who are called uh, Eved Hashem as well. Moshe is not the only one. Avram is called Eved Hashem. The Kalev is called Eved Hashem. The Avdi Kalev in the story of the Meraglim, he's referred to as Eved Hashem there for following God and rejecting the temptations of the, the, the plot of the Meraglim. There are other people who are called Eved Hashem, but Moshe is, I guess, the quintessential Eved Hashem. Moshe is the one who uh, called Eved Hashem several times. Several times, and, and here also, Moshe is called Eved Hashem. Yoshua is taking over after the death of Moshe, Eved Hashem. So Hashem appears to Yoshua in a nevuah. Vayomer Hashem al Yoshua ben Nun, Mishares Moshe Lamar. Hashem appears to Moshe. Hashem appears to Yoshua, Yoshua ben Nun, who is the who is the servant who is the was the servant of Moshe. The, the Torah, the Chumash, refers to Yeshua as Yeshua ben Nunar Lamashmi Ohel. Yeshua is described repeatedly as uh, someone who was uh, an attendant of Moshe, who followed Moshe around, who was uh, 
who was a disciple and acolyte of uh, of Moshe. So he appear he appears to he appears to uh, he appears to Yoshua ben Nun, and he tells him the following. Commentaries discuss what exactly the, the this is something most of us have probably wondered at one time or another, but but Yoshua ben Nun is referred to as ben Nun. His father was Nun. Usually we refer to people as Ben, you know, the vast, vast majority, almost universally, with the word used to say son is Ben in the Torah with a segel. Yoshua Ben Nun is, uh, is, is written with a chirik. Um, it's not entirely clear why. The, 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 there might be Midrash, there might, there might be uh, more, uh, more conceptually uh, fancy, interesting pshat and why, but the simple pshat, as expressed by the Radak, the reason Yoshua Ben Nun is written with a chirik, he says, is because he says that Yeshua ben Nun is universally, consistently written as bin with a chirik and not with a segel. The reason is, he says, because the two words are connected and they're both small words and they uh, and just reads it more easily. Ben Nun, it just somehow the, the, the linguistically, phonetically, it sounds easier to say those two words, small, small, bite-sized words that just are run together a lot. It just sounds easier to say bin Nun. So this is a you know, classic idea of the Radak. We don't necessarily need to look for uh, lofty symbolism and hidden meanings in this. It's just a uh, has to do with the, with the way language develops. Language is not all about you know logic and uh, philosophical principles. Language is about words that uh, that are easy to say. This is a common thing. The the, the Rishonim who discuss grammar they often explain certain rules or exceptions to certain rules, not necessarily as symbolizing great philosophical truth, but that language is ultimately. Uh, a human thing, to, to, to a large extent, language is human. Lush and Kodesh, there are some ideas that it's divine, but in general, language is a human thing, and it's designed and it's, uh, it's crafted to be suitable for humans, so you have to take into account what makes sense and what's practical and what's, uh, what's doable for humans, not always uh, to you rigidly to, to, you rigidly to, uh, to abstract logical principles. So, Hashem appears to Yoshua ben Nun, the Mishari's Moshe, and he tells him as follows. He tells him. So, 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 so I, 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 as a scientist, that's what we have to wonder. If we have a hypothesis, does it sufficiently explain uh, the, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the data that we have? Is it, uh, does it, is, is, is it consistent that all the short words are bin and all the long words are not bin? Yes, I don't know. I, I, you'd have to take into account, you'd have, you'd have to look at, I don't know, if Ben Chase, if people are referred to as so-and-so Ben Chase. Uh, but anyway, if somebody is, interesting question, obviously. I don't know if there's also something to do with... Uh, Radak mentions two things. He says, Milos Eros, they're small words, Vinid Bakos, and they're connected, which may simply mean that we say Ben Nun. I don't know if it has to do with the fact that the Nuns are the same letter and they end, so it kind of flows. I'm, he doesn't say that explicitly, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Would this account for other examples? Would this be consistent for other names as well? I think you just have to look at other languages. Uh, for some odd reason this morning, I was thinking of the English word druthers. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I'd rather, rather became druther. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so the, the question of other languages as well. I, the, linguistics is not really my strong point, but the, the Rishonim, certainly the, the Mepharshim who engage in Pshat, do sometimes engage in at least uh, some rudimentary comparative linguistics. They, they, they talk about the Arabic sometimes when, when, they want to, uh, when they want to explain a word or they want to explain a phrase. So that today, of course, modern scholars tend to do this more, uh, more, more systematically than other languages, old languages, Akkadian and you know, Sumerian languages and whatnot, but uh, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really uh, well-versed in, 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 in linguistics and grammar. 
So I, I don't have much to say about that, but yeah, but th that would be another idea to, to, to try to see if there are similar, similar parallels in, in other languages of the, of the time. The, 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 the point I made, by the way, about Avdi Moshe, so the Radak also picks up on that. The Radak says Moshe is called Evid because he's someone who channeled all his focus, all his energy, all his uh, concentration to, to the service of God. Even when he engaged in worldly affairs, he he helped, he ultimately had uh, he ultimately had lofty and divine directed attention. He calls him Eved Hashem. He gives examples of other people who are called Eved Hashem. I mentioned Avram. He mentions David as well. Nevi'im were called prophets. That all these people who committed themselves to Akash Baruch Hu were called uh, were called Eved. So the can go on. Moshe Avdi Mes the. Hashem tells Moshe, my servant, again, Moshe, Moshe is again referred to as Avdi, Moshe Avdi, my servant Moshe, has died. Now, come, get up, arise, cross the Arden. You and the whole nation, the whole nation of the Jewish people, to the land, to the land that I am giving the children of Israel. So, when Hashem tells us to Yoshua, so he, 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 the, 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 first, the first half of the sentence is, Moshe, my servant, has died. And then he says, and now what we're going to do is we're going to cross the Arden and enter Eretz Yisrael. So the, the commentaries discuss what exactly is the connection between Moshe Avdi Meis. I mean, it's true, Moshe had died, but why is Hashem mentioning that? I mean, everyone knew Moshe was dead. You know, what is the connection here between the two, the two halves of the Pasuk? What is the connection between the death of Moshe and God's further instructions for Yeshua to enter Eretz Yisrael. So, again, this is the kind of thing the Mephoshim will always pick up, that uh, we might just read the Psukim and, okay, that, that he said, Moshe Avdi Meis, but then the Mephoshim look for a uh, tighter logical coupling here between the, the two halves of the Pasuk. So we actually, have, we actually have a number of different interpretations, a number of interesting different interpretations. The, we have the three or four different explanations of what the connection here is between Moshe Avdi Meis and, and the Jews entering Eretz Yisrael. Rashi says something which my, my wife brought to my attention when, when she was learning Navi a while ago. She, she, she's still struck by it to this day. Rashi says, Moshe Avdi Meis, the Iluhaya Kayam, Bohayisi Chafetz. If Moshe would be alive, I'd prefer to deal with him. I would rather, uh, I would rather, uh, I, I would be, uh, I, I would prefer him over you. He's dead, you're my second choice. My wife is, is just, you know, I guess women are sometimes, it's a cliche, women are sometimes more sensitive to, uh, to uh, emotional things. My wife is always just like, how does it make Yeshua feel? God says, you're not my first choice, but my first choice is dead, so you're, you're, you're my second choice. You know, so that, I guess Yeshua was a big boy, Yeshua could take it. He was, uh, Yeshua was a great man and a Navi, and he, he Saying that you're not as good as Moshe is, you know, it's an insult I could live with also, that you're not Moshe Rabbeinu, but okay. But it's still, it's a, it's, a, it's a striking thing to tell someone, had he been alive, I would, uh, I would rather deal with him. He's not alive, so I'm going to, uh, so that, that's why I'm dealing with you. That's why you should know you're, you're, not, uh, you're not the ideal person for this job, but, uh, but you're, 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 you're the one we have at this point. Uh -huh. Yeah, maybe that's what the Oh, that, uh, that, that was decision, you mean? Right, and that takes us, that, that, the fact that it was a decision, deliberate decision, that actually takes us to another, to another interpretation of the connection, and that is the Mitsudas David. Mitsudas David, as we said last week, was a relatively later commentary, but, but, but he writes often in the style of the, of the early commentaries. 
he was, I think, 18th century, but, but he, writes in the, he writes in the style of the earlier commentaries. He often deals with the same questions, often, often kind of summarizes their explanations. Sometimes he has ideas of his own. And over here, he says a different connection between Moshe Avdi Mace. He says, had Moshe been alive, the Jews could not have crossed the Arden at all. Ki olav nigzar lebal yava. As we learn in Chumash, the story of the Memoriva and Parshas Chukas, Moshe committed, Moshe and Aaron committed a grave error in the eyes of God when they struck the rock at, uh, at, at, at Memoriva. What exactly the error was is a notoriously thorny problem. The, the Torah is uh, remarkably ambiguous about exactly what the sin was. There are literally dozens of different explanations in the, in the commentaries about what Moshe did wrong, but Moshe did something wrong. He, he, sh- he shouldn't have struck the rock, he should have talked to the rock, according to some. He got angry at the Jewish people. He should have had more uh, sympathy with their plight and desperation. He shouldn't have said, we're going to bring forth the water. We're going to bring forth the water. He should have been more clearly attributing it to God and not taking credit for it. Whatever it is, Moshe did something wrong at the, in, in the story of Meriva, in the story of Meriva in Pasha's Chukas. And there was a decree that, he, that Hashem said, Yan lo bi. Marisem, it says elsewhere, you rebelled. You, you, you lacked faith in me, God says. Therefore, you will not cross the Jordan. You, will, you and Aaron will both die in, uh, before the Jews cross the Jordan and enter Eretz Yisrael. Indeed, that's what happened. Aaron died shortly after that, the, the Torah says. And Mo- I mean, they both died shortly after that, but Aaron died more immediately after that. And Moshe dies in the end of uh, the very end of the, of the Chumash. And now they could cross the Yardin. And the Surah Stavid says, that's what, Hashem, that's what Hashem was saying. Moshe Abdi Mace, the last obstacle we have before we can cross the Yardin, has now occurred. Now we have the green light to cross the Yardin. I could not take the Jewish people across until, the, until Moshe had passed away because there was a decree that Moshe would not cross the Yardin. Didn't Aaron die on the west side of the Yardin? Um, um, or in the Negev, actually? Yeah, it's, uh, in the Negev, yes, I, I don't know. I, mean, I thought the Pesukim made clear that they did not yet cross the Yardin. Uh, it it, it might have been farther south. I, I, I don't actually know the... I'm, I'm a little weak on the geography, which is going to become a big problem when we get to the very geographical sections of Yeshua later. Maybe we'll bring in maps. But the, I'm pretty sure he did not make it across the Yardin, but we have to look at the Pesukim uh, a little more. Aaron. Har Har, right? That's what, uh, that's what you're both saying. That that's, right. He died in a mountain called Har Har. I, th- I think from a from Torah, where that mountain is, maybe we know where it is. Isn't that in the Negev? I think I've seen something on a map pointing to it. So they went around that way. Uh huh. That's the, that's the cover of the arm. Probably not true. on the other side of the Arava. Yeah, it's like in Jordan. So if you actually go through the Jordan, yeah, there's a spot that people claim is probably not accurate. But anyway, the point is that it is on the other side of the Arava. Yeah, it's like in Jordan. Yeah, it's a spot that people claim but Rashi brings another interpretation, which is found in the Talmud, what the connection is between Moshe Avdi Mace. And this is a very, very curious set of Midrashim that are found in the Talmud in Maseches Tmura. The Talmud Bavli says in Maseches Tmura, it brings a statement of Shmuel, Rabbi Yehudah Mar Shmuel, 3,000 halachas, Shloshes Alafim halachas, were forgotten by Evlo Shel Moshe. There were 3,000 laws that Moshe had taught the Jewish people that, uh, that, 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 that should have been part of their Masorah of Torah that were forgotten 
during the, the stress, the, the, the tragedy, the, the mourning for Moshe. The Gemara goes on and says a few more statements about this, this, this episode. There are some variations of, the, of, of what happened, but the Talmud again brings the statements of Shmuel. 3,000 halachas were forgotten by Me'evlosh Moshe. They told Yoshua, Sha'al, people wanted to recover these halachas. They said, ask God, you're a Navi, you, you, you speak to God, God speaks to you. Sha'al, ask God to re, uh, restate these halachas. Amrlei lo Yeshua said, Torah is not in heaven, a very, very famous Talmudic assertion. The Torah is, came from heaven, it was given, Shavuos, it was given to, to the Jews at Sinai, it was given to Minashamayim, Minashamayim dibarti aleichem, but uh, it, was, it was in heaven, but it's no longer in heaven. The Torah today is given to the Jewish people, it's given to the human Chachme Yisrael, and no more divine communication. The Gemara goes on, they ask later, they ask Shmuel, 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 was, Shmuel was much later, but they asked Shmuel, they still hadn't gotten halachas back, they said, you ask, he gave them a similar answer, he said, but I can't, uh, my, 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 uh, the scope of my nevuah is not Torah, I, 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 don't, I don't do Torah, I, I tell you the, the God's will on an ad hoc basis, or predictions about the future, but, but I don't, uh, but, but, but I, can't, I can't recover Torah through nevuah. The Gemara goes on. They asked. Uh, they asked Pinchas, also a navi. He said, "Lo b'shemayim." He. They asked Elazar. He brought the other drasha. Ela mitzvos. Ein navi rasha lechadish davar meyata. That neviim can no longer teach us Torah. They can teach us Torah. People point out as talmidei chachamim that were also chachamim, so they could teach us Torah the way any chacham could. But that wasn't enough. The halachas were forgotten, and they couldn't be recovered by ordinary chachma apparently. And nevua, nevua is out of bounds for teaching Torah. The Gemara goes on. The Gemara brings us. A slightly different version of this story later in the same daf. The Gemara says, the Gemara says that Bishash, this statement is reviewed on Marav. The first one was Yishmuel, the first one was reviewed on Shmuel, this one is reviewed on Marav. It says that when Moshe died, when Moshe was dying, not, uh, not yet dead, he was going to Gan Eden, Bishash and Nifter, and right before, right after, when, when you read Shakespeare, so when characters die, they get to make long speeches. Like as they die, after they've been stabbed to death, they get to make a long speech about... Uh, I don't know exactly when... Uh, as Moshe was dying, he was going to Gan Eden. So he, uh, so he told Yoshua, this is your last chance. Ask me any questions that you have, and, uh, and I'll answer them now. This is, you know, the window's closing, the opportunity's closing. Ask me any questions that you have. Amarlo, Rebbe, I have no questions, he told him. My teacher... I, I was with you all the time. I shadowed you. I followed you. Didn't you write about me? So we mentioned earlier, Yeshua ben Nun is referred here to as he's referred to here as Mishares Moshe. He's referred to in Sefer Shmos as well. He never left Moshe's tent. I'm with you all the time, so I know everything you know. I don't have any. I don't have any questions. So miyad toshash kocho shel Yeshua. Apparently, this was Yeshua was uh, maybe he was displaying a little bit of arrogance. Maybe he should have been a little bit more humble. Maybe it's not not clear exactly why. But it says Yeshua immediately was struck by by weakness, by some type of spiritual or intellectual weakness. And he forgot three hundred halachas, and he also had seven hundred sveikas. Three hundred halachas he forgot outright. He had seven hundred sveikas. 
So this is similar to the first story. That it was the first story was we may evolution Moshe was after Moshe had died that uh, that during the evil they forgot three thousand halachas. In this story, it was during a conversation he had with Moshe shortly before Moshe's death that he that he forgot three hundred and uh, had seven hundred tzvekas, and apparently as uh, as a consequence of his uh, self assuredness. So in, in this version of the story, it says the Jewish people wanted to. Murder him. Wanted to depose him, apparently, and kill him. Amdu called Yisrael Hargo. It was his responsibility to remember the Torah, and, if, and it was his fault, and they were going to kill him. So, so he asked the Kosh Baruch Hu what to do, apparently. So Kosh Baruch Hu told him, Lo I cannot teach you the Torah like I taught Moshe, because we'll, see, we'll discuss why in a moment. So there's no solution. You're stuck between, um, you're in a tough situation. So my recommendation to you is, my, my orders for you are, Lech v'tardin v'mulchama. Go uh, occupy them, channel their energy into some other uh, martial or uh, belligerent posture. To so go get them involved in war, with they'll, they'll 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 get them off uh, off you and onto somebody else. So go start go start the war. Shenemar by he achrimos Moshe ever Hashem by Yom Rashem that go 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 start the war. Go start the conquest of Canaan. The Gemara goes on. It says Abraisa says there were elef ushvameos kalim v'chamurin. 1700, according to this version, Kalvachomers, or Afrotiori arguments, other hermeneutical principles, Gzeira Shavos, Dikduke Sofrim, different types of halachas and drushas, Nishtachim Evelish Moshe were forgotten during the Evel of Moshe, and it talks about, talks about how they came back, according to this version, Asniel ben Knaz, a figure we're going to learn about in Shoftim, elsewhere, was able to recover them, he talked Pulpulo, so... There are various stories we have here in the Gemara about halachas that were forgotten either at the end of Moshe's life because of Yeshua's self-assuredness, 300, or during the, during the Avelis of Moshe, uh, that, version, that version there were 1,000, 300, uh, the, in the, I'm sorry, in the Evelish of Moshe with 3,000, in the end of Moshe's life there were 300 forgetting plus 700 uh, Svekas, 1,700 in this version. The common denominator was that during, around this transition period, there were a number of halachas that were forgotten. Rashi brings a kind of amalgamation of the different ideas in this Gemara. Rashi says, Rebbeseinu Darshu. This is, of course, one of the things Rashi is famous for, for citing Midrashim, whether from the Talmud or from other Midrashim. Rebbeseinu, that means the literature of Chazal, of Midrash, whether in Talmud or, or other Midrash. Rebbeseinu Darshu, that the connection here between Moshe's death and between starting the war was because of the 3,000 halachas that were forgotten by Evelish al Moshe. Hakosh Baruch Hu asked Hashem to tell him, and, 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 and Hakosh Baruch Hu said, Moshe Avdi Meis, Torah Al Shmo Nikris. The Gemara said, Lomar Lachai Yefsher, I can't tell you the halachas. Rashi understands that to mean, Moshe Avdi Meis, the Torah is what we call Torah's Moshe, Zichru Torah's Moshe Avdi. Moshe is uh, inextricably bound with Torah. Torah can only come through Moshe Rabbeinu, not through you. Torah Al Shmo Nikris, Lomar Lachai Yefsher, I can't tell you the halachas. Therefore, go save a Tardin Muhammad, go start the war to, uh, like the Gemara says, to take their minds off their anger at you and go, and go start a war somewhere else. So Rashi is combining several Gemaras, the Gemara of the 3,000 halachas that were forgotten in the evolution of Moshe, and the other Gemara that says that Yoshua forgot them during Moshe's life, and they were angry at him for the thousand things, and then, but, say, but go start the war. And when the Gemara says, Lomar Lecha I can't tell them to you, so Rashi brings the idea, because the Torah is Nikre Sal Shmo, and I can't give them to you, so therefore the only solution is go, uh, go get involved in the war. Just to speak for a couple of minutes about the other point in the Gemara, which Rashi does not mention, the point of Torah Loba Shemaimi. Torah is not in heaven. 
This is a very, very famous Talmudic principle. It comes up in a number of different contexts. One of the, one of the contexts is the Tanr Shalachnoi, the famous oven of Achnai in Bav Metziah. The, the Tanr Shalachnoi was a dispute about ritual law, about Tumah and Tara. The, ta- the story of Tanr Shalachnoi that we're going to discuss now is very famous. The actual ritual dispute that they had in the beginning about the oven is a very, very technical uh, case, which, which most people don't remember. It had to do with the Tumah and Tara of a certain oven that was taken apart and put back together in a certain way. I don't even remember the exact details, but they had a question about Tumah and Tara. And it was a machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer, one of the Tanaim, against the, all his colleagues, the rest of the Chachamim. And he simply would not agree. Even though he was outnumbered, he was, in the, he was uh, an outlier opinion, he would not agree to the consensus, to the majority opinion. So they progressed eventually beyond ordinary logical argument, ordinary uh, arguments in, in Torah. And he began to produce a series of miracles and divine signs that he was right. He said, let the, let the, if I'm right, let the tree show I'm right. So the tree moved. He said, if I'm right, let this brook, this river show that I'm right. And the direction of the flow of water reversed itself. He said, if I'm right, let the walls of the base Midrash show that I'm right. They began to lean over. And Rabbi Yeshua said, what are you doing? Uh, where, where, why, why are you deferring to him? Chachme Yisrael are arguing. Why are you mixing in? So they, the walls be, began to, to return. And then they, the walls were stuck between two... Uh, inexorable forces, so the wall stayed halfway, halfway leaning because of this tension between the two Chachamim. Finally, the Gemara says, Rabbi Yezer uh, tried the nuclear option. He said, if I'm right, let a divine voice, let, a, let, let Shemayim itself directly, explicitly uh, endorse my position. So a baskol, a heavenly voice, uh, emerged and said, why are you challenging Rabbi Yezer? He's correct. Allah is like him. Rabbi Yeshua got up and he said, not impressed. Torah is not in heaven. Torah is decided by terrestrial sages, by the Chachme Yisrael. We do not defer to a Basco. Rabbi Yeshua's position is generally normative. We, we generally accept Rabbi Yeshua's view that we don't decide Torah based on post-Mosaic Baskals. There are other Gemaras that talk about it, and there is actually some debate about it. It's not quite as, uh, as simple as it sounds. In the, in the medieval period, there was a very, very curious sefer called Shailos Uchuvas Menashemayim. Questions and answers from heaven. There was one of the, the medieval Ashkenazic sages, the, one of the Balitosis, was called Rabbi Yaakov of Marves, Rabbi Yaakov Achasid. He was one of the Balitosis. He learned, you know, he learned in the schools of the Balitosis. He also had the unusual habit. He would pose questions before he went to sleep. He would pose questions of heaven and he would receive the answers in dreams, and he recorded the answers in a, in a small work called She'el Futshuvas Menashemayim. It doesn't have a huge impact on halacha. It's not, it's not a central, uh, heavily influential sefer. But it does have, you know, I think a few dozen, uh, a few dozen psakim that he received Menashemayim. And Revavadi Yosef has, I think in Archaim, the first volume, has four tshuvas, an epic discussion on a particular halachic point. The, the, the particular halachic point in question, I always point out, sometimes some of the greatest, most profound philosophical issues in Judaism come up in the, most, you know, in the context of the most technical and most uh, you know, down-to-earth uh, context. Ravadi Yosef was discussing an old machlokas, going back to the medieval period, about whether women should make a bracha, recite a blessing, on a mitzvah se shazman grum. Time-bound mitzvahs that they're not obligated in, like shofar or lulav, 
the custom is many women do them. Many women do listen to the shofar and do take lulu. They don't have to, but, but there's, a, there's a widespread custom that they do. And there's a major question whether they should make a bracha on those mitzvahs. It's a classic debate. The Balitosis said they could. Rambam says they shouldn't. Asher You commanded us. Women can't say v'tzivanu. They weren't commanded. And the Balitosis say the Jews in general were commanded, and it's a mitzvah for everyone, even if they weren't commanded. So it's an old machlokus whether women should make a bracha mitzvah say shes man gram. All right. The Ramah paskins, the Minig Ashkenaz, the Ramah paskins like the Balitosis, that they do. The Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Maran Bet Yosef, paskins like the Rambam, that they do not. And generally speaking, the Svardic custom was they do not. Ashkenazic custom is that they do. So when a, when, when a woman takes lulav today, she typically, if she, an Ashkenazi woman typically makes a bracha, Svardic women do not. Apparently, more recently, Svardic women began, to take, uh, began making a bracha on lulav and so on. And Rav Avadia, who devoted much of his career to uh, defending and shoring up uh, Svardic traditions, that, uh, re- reinstating pride in the, in the glory of the Svardic halachic traditions and so on, he fought very hard against this. He wrote, I think, four tshuvas on this topic, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to reestablish and reassert the traditional Svardic custom. Ravadi had no problem with Ashkenazim following the Balitosis, and that's a legitimate shita as well. But for Svardim, he felt strongly, for, for Svardiyot, for Svardic women, he felt that their authentic Misora was that they should follow the Balitosis, that they should follow the Rambam and not make a bracha on mitzvahs like Lula. So what does this have to do with us? Apparently, one of the reasons that some Svardim were beginning to make brachas on mitzvah seish as man grama was because Rabbi Yaakov of Marves in Sheil Tzuvas Menashemayim had written that was one of the questions he asked, and the answer he got was like the Balitosfus that you should make a bracha on mitzvah seish as man grama. So Svardim in general are often uh, influenced by, by Kabbalistic things, by, by these types of things. So some Svardim had begun to follow the Ashkenazi custom, and Ravadia was very upset. So besides going through the halachic discussion, he also spent uh, a tshuva or two going through this entire sugya, as only Rav Avadya can, of going through this entire sugya of Tar Labashamayimhi, of trying to uh, lay down the rules for to what extent, if any, is it legitimate to uh, allow divine revelation, post-Mosaic divine revelation, to influence the halacha. And he, uh, he spends a lot of time arguing based on the position of the Rambam, taking a hardline view that no way, no how, we do not allow the Torah to, in, we do not allow divine revelations, what seems to be divine revelations, we do not allow them to determine the halacha, and therefore the, evident, the, the, the testimony of Sheil Tzuas Menashemayim is irrelevant, the, the, the halacha is the halacha, since the Svardik Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch say no, the answer is no, and the Sheil Tzuas Menashemayim has no particular authority in this, in this matter. So Ravadia brings, there's a, there's a rich tradition on this general question of Torah when it applies, when it doesn't apply. The, one of the central questions has to do with a contradiction in the Talmud. This Gemara we read in Tzmura, in the context of the Arab Sukkim and Yeshua, say Torah can't ask a Navi about a halacha. The Gemara of Tanah Shalach Noi, Rabbi Yeshua says Torah and that's the halacha. However, there's another Gemara. The Gemara says that Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai had a whole slew of disagreements, and they fought, they, quarreled, they, they argued about their disagreements for years, literally for years, until, according to one opinion in the Gemara, the Gemara brings different versions, but according to one opinion in the Gemara, the, the matter, the, their, their general set of disputes was eventually resolved when a Baskol emerged and said, Halacha ki Beisil. We know, of course, that Halacha is like Beisil. Beishamah is completely rejected. Beishamah makam Beisil lav mishnahi. It's completely uh, non-normative. And according to one explanation of the Gemara, that was because... That was because the Baskal said, Halacha Kedivir Beis Hill. 
So Tosha says, Baskel, what happened to Baskel? Baskel, we just said, Taralaba Shemayami, why are we suddenly introducing Baskels? So Tosfus and other commentaries struggle with this question. They have different approaches. According to some approaches, they say we actually do follow Baskels. We, we don't say Taralaba Shemayami. The only time we say Taralaba Shemayami was in the case of Rebbe Eliezer, where we suspect the Baskel may have been just Lechvodo, uh, and the, the heavens wanted to show respect for a great scholar like him, so we asked for a Baskel, so he was granted a Baskel. But that didn't really reflect the true, uh, the true opinion of God, or because, the, so according to that approach, we, we could actually follow Baskels as long as they're not, uh, as long as we don't have a reason to write it off as being, uh, as being a Baskel like that. So that's another approach that we, that we normally don't follow Baskels, except for the fact that Hillel was anyway really the majority, just that Peshamai were very acute, but Peshillah really was the majority. So we follow the Baskel because it supports the, the rule of Acherab Lahatos. In the case of Rebbe Eliezer, it's against the rule of Acherab Lahatos. So there are different approaches in Tosus about whether it's really, we should really take the statement at face value of Tarla Bashamayim. It's not entirely clear. The Chidah, the the, the, the was a uh, was a was a was an incredibly versatile Italian uh, rabbinic polymath. Besides being a great halachist, two two centuries ago, Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai. Besides being a, a tremendous halachist uh, who wrote extensively on Shulchan Aruch, he wrote Birkei Yosef, he wrote Chuvos, and he also was a uh, was a was one of the greatest of Jewish bibliographers. He he wrote a work called Shem Hagadolim, which was an encyclopedia of uh, rabbinic personalities and rabbinic books, rabbinic bibliography, which was uh, an outstanding work. Today, obviously, we, we, we've progressed beyond it, but he, he still held, he still admired as, uh, as an outstanding bibliographer. He knew everything about, uh, about rabbis, about books, about history. So in, in, in his Shem HaGadolim, in his biographical work, his bibliographic slash biographic work, he has an entry for the Rabbi Yaakov Achasid, where, where he has a long discussion of Torah Lovash Miami, a classic discussion, and he actually inclines to the view that, according to many authorities, it is legitimate to follow Baskals if they don't contradict any established halachic principles. Rabbi Vadia takes issue with this. Rabbi Vadia argues that the Iker is not like this. The Iker is we don't follow Baskals. So there is actually a rich literature in halacha about whether, it's, whether we take an absolutist, uh, no exceptions principle of we never follow Baskals, Torah is never Bashamayim, or whether sometimes we do. It's actually a matter of some dispute, but I'll call upon him. This is what the Gemara says in Tmura. The Gemara in Tmura says, Torah la he we don't follow Baskals. Rashi brings the other idea of the Gemara that Torah is called Torah's Moshe, it's called al Shem Moshe, and therefore we cannot, uh, we, we cannot, we cannot re, uh, reissue any Torah through you. And the only solution is, again, a strange solution, the only solution is to go start a war, and that's why, that's the connection here, Moshe Avdi Mace. And now we are going to begin the war, begin the conquest of the, begin the conquest of the land of Canaan. Yes. So it, it, it's not entirely clear, and it depends, I think, on the different versions. That we, there, are, there, are, there are three different sections, at least three different sections in this Gemara. In the first part of the Gemara, the Gemara says that, that there were 3,000 halachas that were forgotten, bimei evlo shel Moshe. So that, according to that version, it sounds like that, it sounds like that the nishtachu means they forgot after Moshe died. It sounds very much like they were taught. But in the, in the deep, in the great mourning and the stress of the Evlosh al-Moshe, they were simply forgotten. According to the other version of the Gemara, the Gemara says 
Moshe asked Yeshua, ask me any questions you don't know, and Yeshua said, I know everything, and, and then it says, Toshash Kocho, he, he, his, his cock was weakened, and it says, the language is, uh, or also Nishtakhu, it sounds like at least Yeshua was taught them, it sounds like, but, but it, it, it does, it, 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 although it says there were, there, were two, there were two sections, there was one that he forgot 300, and the other one was, he had 700 svekas. It says he got 700 questions. That could just be he realized there were 700 things he wasn't sure about, or he, maybe he was never sure about. Maybe he realized he was less sure than he uh, less sure than he, than he thought he was. Maybe he had he had kind of not realized that, that certain things weren't clear. It's not entirely clear, but the Gemara does use the word shikha a few times, that uh, which, 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 which has the meaning of, of forgotten. As I mentioned earlier, the Gemara brings one opinion that they were that some of these at least some of these were later recovered. By, by Pilpul, by Talmudic analysis, by, by logic and reasoning, by Asniel ben Knaz, who was a figure in, uh, who was a figure in, that, that, a figure that we're going to learn about later. I said, I think I said Shoftim before, he's actually, I think, late, later in, uh, actually, I think he, be, he might be later in Yoshua, but uh, we'll, 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 have, we'll have to see when we, we'll, we'll have to see when we, uh, when we get to him. Um, okay. Where do the numbers 3,000, 300, 700, 1,700 come from? It's a good question. The Gemara, as far as I noticed, doesn't bring any drushes for these numbers. There is a fascinating essay by Ratzvi Hershchayas, the Maritz Chayas. Ratzvi Hershchayas was, uh, was a great 19th century rabbinic thinker. <laughs> he, he was an interesting figure. On the one hand, he was a, he was a staunch tr- traditionalist in the sense that he fought bitterly against the Maskilim, those who wanted to, the, refor- the early reformers, he fought bitterly against the Maskilim. On the other hand, he himself was sympathetic to some of the modern, modern ideas of the, the culture, the intellectual culture of the 19th century, and he was actually uh, castigated by some of his right-wing rabbinic scholars for being a little too sympathetic to certain ideas of the Haskalah. Rebetzin Bruria David, Rabbi Yonason David's uh, wife, the daughter of Rafutner, she has a uh, she, she has a doctorate in history. It's not it's not talked about it so much now in her circles, but but her her academic thesis was was, was, was she has a famous thesis which circulates on the internet. It's called Rabbi Tzvi Hershchayas, muscular traditionalist, where she tries to I think uh, she tries to make sense of the conflicting. I, I have it downloaded somewhere. I, I never read it, but it, but it's uh, it, she tries to make sense. I think of the conflicting. Strands in his thought. By, by and large, he was a uh, he's, he's, he's well regarded as a great actor of the time. His kedushim were printed in the back of the Gemara, but uh, but but he also was sympathetic in some ways to certain modern ideas of uh, of intellectual thought. I, I'm mentioning this because he he wrote uh, he wrote a number of works on scholarship of the Talmud, kind of not just. Talmudic halacha, but he wrote you know, works about the composition of the Talmud, the style of the Talmud, you know, trends in Talmudic thought. He wrote, you know, kind of like a proto-academic, uh, proto-academic studies of the Talmud. So he discusses things like exaggeration in the Talmud, uh, you know, stories in the Talmud. He discusses a lot of the themes, a lot of the, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of aspects that emerge from the study of Talmud. So I recall he has a chapter on numbers in the Talmud where he makes the point also, I think, that certain numbers are often used you know, kind of figuratively as, uh, as exaggerations, but they mean a very large number. Like he picks numbers like 600,000 or 400, where he says we often find are certain numbers that appear repeatedly in Chazal in, in unrelated context, just you know, 400 barrels of this, 400 units of that, 400 this. 
and often to show that something is very large. It was a very large number. And, and he makes the point, I, I haven't seen this essay in a long time, so I, I don't remember if he discusses Aragamara, but he does make the point that there were certain numbers that Chazal liked to use to mean a, lo- a very large number. We say a million or you know, stuff like that. He brings it to a certain number. It's not always the numbers we might, we might pick to mean very large, but, but he, he points out that there are certain numbers that it's clear from Chazal that they often used to use these numbers as a way of saying very, very large or very... So it, maybe I, I'd have to check and see if he says that. If I remember, I'll check before the next time we meet uh, whether he uh, says that about any of these numbers. Sometimes Chazal themselves bring drushes for, for how, they saw, how they saw the numbers. One of my favorite examples is that uh, every child knows that there are 613 mitzvahs. So why are there 613 mitzvahs? Chazal don't enumerate them. The, the, the source of the number 613 is a Gemara in Makos. The Gemara says, Torah tzivalanu Moshe. Moshe taught us Torah. Torah is bigamatria 611. And the Gemara says that two mitzvahs, Anoch, the first two of the Ten Commandments, Anochi Hashem Elokecha and Lo Yielecha, were Mipi Hashem. And the other 611 were Torah tzivalanu Moshe were taught by Moshe. We only heard, we heard two directly from God and 611 from, uh, through Moshe, and that was uh, 613. So there are those who, are, who suggest that the number 613 was said primarily as an agade. It wasn't meant as, uh, as the Rambam wrote an entire sefer full of incredible uh, analysis and tremendous chedushim and fascinating conceptual uh, frameworks to, to explain where, where the number comes from. But there are those who say it's only approximately 613. We shouldn't get too hung up on, on counting because Chazal never meant to give a, uh, a rigid, precise number. They meant it's an agadic drasha. There are around 613, as is, as is indicated by, the, by, by this drasha of Torah Tzivalana Moshe. But, but there are Rishonim who say, I believe, that it wasn't exactly 613. It was just a number that Chazal used for the purpose of, of a midrash, of an agada. All right, that's, that's, not, that's not the dominant approach. The, the vast majority of Rishonim assume that there are exactly 613, and literally entire books have been written, such as Rambam's, to explain where the number comes from. But certainly there are some numbers that, 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 emerge, that emerge from Drushes. I, I didn't go through the entire Gemara here, you know, word for word, so it's possible I missed something. It's possible that there is some Drusha that Gemara gets it from, but I don't know. It's an interesting question. Where exactly did, uh, where exactly did these numbers come from? Are they... Typical numbers that mean a lot. Are they are they hinted at in Sukkim? Is there some kind of mystery that Chazal are not telling us? I I do not know, but uh, but uh, definitely an interesting question. So uh, I would also point out, by the way, that the related point: the numbers in the Gemara are round numbers. They're all uh, they're all um, to the you know, they're they're all, they're all multiples of hundred. Um, this is a question that comes up in the Torah's numbers as well, in Chumash Bamidbar and, and the other places the Torah gives numbers. Where, where the Torah gives counts of large, large, large numbers, the numbers are typically do, do, do not end in, uh, in in single digits. They typically the, the, the census figures, for example, are almost all multiples of 100. A couple are multiples of 50, but 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 they're almost all multiples of 100. And we showed them actually debate whether these numbers are assumed to be round, you know, assumed to be approximations and round, involving rounding, or whether these numbers were fully precise. So there are traditionalist thinkers who say if the Torah gives you a number, it has to be 100% literal and precise, and they were exact, and it was somehow a special divine providence or divine mystery that they were all multiples of 100, but uh, various of them say that absolutely not. They say that they're obviously rounding. It doesn't make sense that they were all, uh, all happen to all be multiples of 100. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a passage of the, in the Rush. In the, the Rush is a very fairly traditional thinker, but the Rush actually writes the Torah says, we're counting Sphira now, the Torah says, Tisperu Hamishim Yom, you should count 50 days. We don't count 50 days, we count 49 days. 
So there are different approaches in the Rishonim, but the Rush says it means around 50 days. It means uh, more or less 50, the, the number that's one before 50. The, the, and, and the Torah writes like that sometimes. It says there were 70 people who went down to Egypt with Yaakov. There were only 69. It means around, it means around, uh, it means around, around 70. 40 Malchus, right. There are a few examples of this, right. 40 Malchus, or the Misparakarov Lafori. There are a number of examples like this where we say it's around, it's not exactly. The problem with the rush is that it also says that there were 33 members of Leah's family, there were only 32, and that's how you get, se- that's how you get 70. So the rush doesn't resolve the 33 and the 32. And also, Chazal give a, famously give a different explanation of the 70, but this idea that the Torah sometimes uses rounding is, is well established in, the, in, in major Rishonim. So even if we assume that, that these numbers were to be interpreted literally, there's still the question of whether these numbers were, they, they, they happened to forget an exact round of multiple of hundreds, or, whether, or whether, again, whether it meant approximately on an order of magnitude around that many halachas. So that, that, that's an interesting question. Well, in particular, uh, up until the 10th generation, does that mean the 11th generation is okay, for example? Right, right. so in that case, uh, ten gener- I believe the halakha is 10 generations mean, uh, means a- and onwards. When it says three generations, that means the third generation is mutter. It says, uh, it says that um, Mitzri and Adomi are usher for three generations, but the third generation is mutter. But when it says 10, I think the Psukim are clear, certainly the Chazal are clear, that 10 means even after 10. In that case, uh, 10 means even after 10.